0: This is a Triple J podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Science with Dr. Carl, where it is NADOC week, celebrating the culture, history and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So we got in the best of the best for this week's science episode, Corey Tart from Deadly Science and Crystal DiNapoli, who is an astrophysicist. We got into a bunch of different questions like, what's the difference between First Nations astronomy and regular astronomy? How do wombats clean their pouch? And can we trick our memory? I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. Dr. Carl, you are here with me, but also we got a couple of special guests, don't we? Uh,
2: not one, but two. And the guests are here for Native week. So firstly, uh, for guests from the past, Corey Tut, Welcome, Dr. Corey. Yama doctors. It's deadly to be here.
1: So good. And we've got Crystal DiNapoli with us as well. Now, Crystal, this is your first time, or well, at least my first time with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you do, because you're an astrophysicist. You know a lot about First Nations astronomy. What kind of questions do you want people to ask you today?
3: Oh, so um, I'm, I'm here to answer, if anyone does have questions about Indigenous astronomy, what it is, maybe some of the ways in which it differs from, I guess, the astronomy we're probably used to hearing about in our classrooms. Um, and also just like the, just like, oh, I don't know, the deadly, the deadly history of it. So we have a very long uh, record of the things that have happened on this land that are contained within our stories, which hold our science. But then also with astronomy, I'm happy to answer any questions. And I can see a couple cool ones have come through as well. So I'm <laughs> I'm really yeah. looking forward
1: to being here today. Oh four three nine seven five seven triple five. if you want to send those in. Now, Corey, I am wearing my deadly science tee. I am... Ready to go. Tell us what is something that's happened in your world because I can see it right in front of me. You've released a brand new book.
0: Yeah, um, I've released a new book called This Book Thinks You're Deadly, a celebration of black excellence. And it's, it's really important because I think, you know, when I was writing this book, I was going through a bit of a tough time. I'd punched in my lung last year playing rugby. Oh. Shout out to the Port Pirates, by the way. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I was looking for inspiration and I think, you know, wow, there's so many amazing Aboriginal people that I look up to, to, like Arnie Kathy Freeman, who, you know, she's known for her running, but she actually FaceTimed a really special friend of mine called Jazz, who's in the Paramatildas and gave her a really deadly pep talk. Um, There's amazing people like Crystal's in the book as well. Um, And I think that, you know, I was looking for inspiration and, um, you know, when you're writing a book. Um, and you write 100,000 words, which is a lot, and then you lose it all and you're like, oh, no, it was actually a really good thing for me because it forced me to actually put personal stories in the book, which is really deadly. Mm. Uh, I'm just really proud of it.
1: Oh, good on you. This book thinks you're deadly out now from Corey Tart. And Corey, what kind of questions do you want to get into?
0: Oh look, anything animal-related, but I also want to—I want to actually answer some questions around um, the relationship between mob and animals because there's mm. some really cool facts. Um, like down in Ewan Country, the relationship between orcas, which are killer whales, and the Aboriginal people, uh, and it involves fishing. So, um, any questions around that? And I can talk a bit about that later.
1: Sounds fabulous. Also, the NADOC theme this year is for our elders. Before we get into science, I kind of wanted to chat a little bit about what this theme means to you, Crystal.
3: Yeah, so uh, I think it's a really important theme and I think it's one that just everyone can get behind quite easily. So our elders for us have been... Oh, just the, the foundations of um, our resistance, sovereignty, our knowledge systems, without them, uh, you know, I wouldn't even be here today to be able to have this sort of chat and to be able to talk about how deadly um, Indigenous astronomy is, for example. So for me, it's an opportunity to reflect on the elders in my life and the people who've had a direct impact on me, but also that wider um, acknowledgement of the elders who are very paramount to our communities, who it's through their resistance and determination that, um, I, you know, we get to be here
1: today doing what we're doing. So. Is there anyone you want to shout out? Oh,
3: so... So there's this, this many, but, um, for me, uh, someone who's been very special is, um, I would love to give a shout out to, uh, a Yorta Yorta elder auntie Dai Singh. So she's the elder in residence at Monash university. And for, for me, and I know for so many bloody other mob that come through Monash, for example, you know, it's a very intimidating experience moving up usually from, you know, remote and rural areas. I came up from the country to go study at, a, you know, an institution like a university, um, And for the whole step of the way, she's been just this incredible support for so many of us. And in particular with me, she really helped fostered my interest in astronomy and gave me some incredible resources and information that just get me really inspired back in the early days. And uh, it was, um, yeah, like to be able to publish the book last year and to be able to give her one of the the very first copies I got my hands on has been everything. So I have so much love for Ani Dye and all the work she does for so many people. And I know she's raised just this crazy generation of young deadly mob who are doing cool things in cool spaces. So uh, that's who I'd love to give a shout out to today.
1: What a legend. What a full circle moment. Your book is out as well. It's called Astronomy Sky Country. Corey, what about you? The theme for our elders?
0: Well, for me, it's such a special theme because my grandfather, and shout out to anyone from the gate and Walgett, any Gomorrah mob out there, send them a love to you. And um, my grandfather, who was a Walford, he gave me my first book, which was Reptiles in Colour, which was um, printed in 1984. By the time I got it, it was 1996, but I remember it because... It was written by Dr. Coggo, who's a famous herpetologist, and it was the first ever um, reptile book put in colour. Um, but then a local shout-out um, on Gadigal Country, where we are today, is Aunty Ver- Beryl Vanopolo, who um, is an elder. She's my also my pop's cousin, and she is a chef who teaches young mums how to cook in Redfern. She's down at the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence, 82 years old, fit as a fiddle, <laughs> um, and she's just amazing. And um, sh- sharing, sending out my love to Aunty Beryl today because she's – um. She's amazing and she deserves all our love.
1: Let's kick off your questions. We've got Michael in the Blue Mountains. Dr. Michael, what do you want to know?
2: Morning, doctors. Uh, My question is if the universe is everything and everything in it and we're told that the uh, universe is constantly expanding, I'm wondering what it's expanding into.
3: Yes, I'm happy to take this question. Thank you for uh, <laughs> one that I think I, I think a lot of us have probably pondered, I guess, at different points when we're, we're sort of, you know, we've heard that the universe is expanding, but you know, if the universe is everything, then wh- where could it possibly be going? And I guess the issue is here is our way of thinking, because we're sort of trapped in our little 3D experience of the world. But the thing is, the universe isn't expanding into another 3D space. It's more, the universe is everything. It's expanding sort of along this like fourth dimension. And so a way that we can actually visualize what's happening, because I know that's like a sad answer, right? You, you want to know what it's expanding into, but it's, it's not expanding into anything. It's just expanding because it is everything. So the way we can visualize it is in, I guess, a sort of taking a step back and, you know, sort of forgetting our 3D world and imagining that we could contain the entire universe just on the surface of something like a balloon, so say the entire universe, a 3D world, is contained to that entire surface of this balloon in this two, this very sort of flat 2D sort of experience. We're not taking the interior of the balloon, just the surface. And so if we were to fill that with air, what we're going to see is this balloon is expanding. And it's ex- expanding in like all directions, not from one central point. And if we were to draw points on that balloon, the more that we blow this air into it and watch it expand, the further away those objects are going to get from one another. And so that's the way we sort of have to visualise it. To be able to conceptualise what it means for a 3D universe to be expanding in a fourth sort of dimension, we sort of have to take this step back into, um, I guess, like a 2D sort of analogy, expanding into a 3D universe. Mm. So I hope that's helped visualise
2: it a bit. And I'll just try and uh, mess it up by giving you a different point of view, Mm -hmm. which is that we've got the concept of the universe expanding as the, uh, and the further away something is from us, the faster it's going. So by the time the things get to fifteen billion light years away from us, they're travelling at the speed of light. This is the Hubble constant, so we can't see anything past that. But then there's the observable universe, which is light from stuff outside coming in, and that's forty three billion light years away, and then as Professor Crystal, Dr Crystal Minston, then there's the whole universe. So there's the Hubble universe, the observable universe, and the universe, universe, and God knows what's after that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Michael, does that help? I guess so. (laughs) Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Michael. We've got Monica in Brisbane right here. Dr Mon, what do you want to
0: ask?
2: Morning, doctors. Uh, My question is how do wombats,
0: clean
1: out their pouch when they have a joey in there that's big enough to wee and poo? Ooh, Corey, is this one for you?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm excited by this question. This is a deadly question. (laughs) So um, marsupials actually are born without an immune system, right? So they're born hairless, they don't have an immune system, and pouches can get quite dirty. So things like golden staph um, occur in pouches, which are really, like, kind of infectious and they can hurt um, animals, but they actually have some antimicrobial compounds in the milk that um, wombats have, and their, their mother excretes this into a pouch and the antibodies actually start cleaning the pouch as well.
1: Wow! And,
0: um, and it's really fascinating. There's some really um, interesting research going on at the moment um, into Tasmanian devils and koalas. And Tasmanian devils are really interesting because they get this thing called devil facial tumor, which is the, only, uh, the world's only known infectious cancer, and it affects um, Tasmanian devils. And they kind of get it when they're um, eating a bit of Karen, not Karen from down the road. <laughs> Karen is in dead meat, and um, they rub their faces up against each other and they catch this infectious cancer. Um, but actually the peptides in the Tasmanian devil's milk has become, um, an antimicrobial, which delays them catching this devil facial tumor until they reach, um, sexual maturity. So they're able to have a litter, but then it eventually sadly does kill them. Um, so we're looking, there's researchers at the moment at the University of Sydney, um, uh, that are looking at the antimicrobial power of marsupials. And hopefully one day that will turn into the next superbug medication.
1: Wow. Right. Wow. Thanks, Monica. (laughs) Goodness. Thank yeah. you very much. Monica, that's something Bye. I hadn't even thought of, just all the matter that would be going into that pouch. Did you say that your wife was cleaning one out the other day or something?
0: Uh, yeah, she works for um, a lab at the University of Sydney and she's looking. Um, she was actually helping the Coil Hospital out in Port Macquarie um, on yeah, um, extracting some of these microbes, which is pretty cool.
1: Wow. <laughs> We've got Keaton in Adelaide right here. Now, Keaton, you've got a question about radio waves. What's going on?
0: Morning, doctors. I just had a question in regards to radio waves being able to reach deep space and
2: first, is there any matter involved in a radio wave and if so, could we use that to transport matter across the universe? Oh, I might have to ask Crystal for help on this one, but um, there's matter, which comes in the three states that we're familiar with, which are solid, liquid and gas. And then there are other states of matter, like plasma, which is most of the regular matter in the universe. And then there's Bose, Einstein, condensates and other sorts of matter. And then there's stuff which is not made of atoms. Now, here's a very clever sentence that Richard Feynman came up with, which comes in two parts. And the first part is everything is made of atoms and then there's a comma. And the second part is which if they are too close together repel each other and if they're too far apart attract each other. And when you think about that, you can learn a lot from that sentence but there are stuff that is not made of atoms and that includes the uh, energy from the sun. So down on the ground, I mean you normally think of energy travelling through a copper wire. But surprisingly, if you followed this up on Veritasium, Derek Mueller, it turns out that most of the energy that comes in a copper wire comes in the electrical field around the copper wire. It travels through space, which in our case has got oxygen and nitrogen atoms. But think about the energy coming from the sun. There's no significant matter. There's no copper wires. But nevertheless, the energy comes through space. So you can have energy yeah. transmitted along radio beams. And I think you sort of go back to Einstein then again. Help me on this one, Crystal. You can think of equals MC squared. Energy is matter that's been released and matter is energy that's been condensed.
3: Yeah, look, I think you're you're tackling it as best you can. I think the... Yeah, I don't think I'd have anything better to add to this question, answer,
1: to be honest. Okay, right there, Keaton. No
0: worries. No worries. Thank you, doctors.
1: We've got Corey, another Corey on the Sunshine Coast. Corey... What's your question?
0: Hi, doctors.
3: Um, my question is about ants and how they're able to find food or dead insects so quickly.
0: Uh, again, great question. And shout-out to all the Corys out there, um, <laughs> the quarry Hotline, as it's known, off The Simpsons. Um <laughs> Ants are really interesting and and they have this sort of ability the same with bees and they can actually smell the fat proteins, uh, decaying fat proteins of dead um, insects and animals and that's how they know if something is dead or alive. Um, And I think your other part of the question is if you you stood still for long enough would ants start to eat you? And I... um, I think that, yes, they would. <laughs> because if you if watch um, Breaking Bad or any of those crime shows, uh, one of the ways that they get rid of um, any
2: potential adversaries is they bury you in sand and they'll wait for the ants to eat you. And there's another factor, which is the pheromones, which comes from the Greek word pharaoh afar and moan to excite, as in hormone. So pheromones are hormones, but they travel outside the body and they're used for the three important things in the universe, which are food, sex and death. In this case, the way they're used for food, when the ant, its sense of smell, has found food, it then grabs some of the food, rushes back to the nest and leaves behind a pheromone trail on the ground saying food, 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 food. Another ant just is wandering along, comes across this trail and thinks, oh, there's a food trail here and it's stronger in that direction and weaker in that direction, I'll go to where the food is and then that's how suddenly one ant turns into a million all after your BLT sandwich.
0: Kind of, kind of reminds me of the Uber Eats app, right? When your Uber Eats driver's going in the wrong direction and you're like, why are you going in the wrong direction? You can see it. You're watching you it. it. Yes. Uh, it's like a, a, it's like not a pheromone, but it's a visionary. Ah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Corey, thank you so much for your question. You've opened up a can of worms, Okay. <laughs> In the middle of Science with Dr. Carl, it is our NAIDOC Week edition because we are chatting some seriously deadly science. Now, Crystal DiNapoli is with us. You're an astrophysicist and you know a lot about First Nations astronomy. Mm -hmm. And when I mentioned that earlier in the show, I got a text, what is the difference between First Nations astronomy and regular astronomy?
3: Yeah, so uh, I guess a lot of it comes down to some of the fundamental differences we have in just the way that we store and encode information. So Aboriginal communities are oral cultures and they're also the world's longest continuing culture on a scale that is absolutely not seen anywhere else in the world. It is absolutely just phenomenal that we have this oral record of events that have occurred over tens of thousands of years here. And so this means that the way that we uh, take our astronomy observations and that we encode our data and the, the um, things that we are understanding about our environment environment. It needs to be in an oral format. And yet we have all this proof of these stories being able to be transmitted accurately for thousands of years. Mm. And so I guess that's one of the way things differ is the way that we actually communicate science because usually, you know, in, I guess like sort of the Western framework, what we're used to in our school system here in Australia, what we're used to in our universities, et cetera, is we can write down our data and we have books and textbooks that we rely on and written words sort of being pretty confident for the last couple thousand years or so but when it comes to aboriginal history what we do is we have so many creative incredible ways of storing information in you know with really phenomenal memory techniques so really pushing the limits of the brain to be able to store and Crazy amount of information using the land itself to encode information into, and usually using story. So, encoding science into story. Wow. And so, whenever I want to talk about Aboriginal astronomy and tell you about some objects, even variable stars, supernova explosion, meteorite impacts, there's always a story accompanying it, and it's always going to tie into so many other areas of our environment. Aboriginal astronomy is never just about the skies. It's telling you about the land, our animals, our waterways, about the seasons and helping us navigate across country. Mm. So it's very interconnected. So it differs in that sort of a way because in, I guess, in a Western sort of science, we tend to sort of compartmentalise our knowledge quite often. You know, you've got astronomy in one sort of box and, you know, your your art's sort of completely separate. And then another way in which it sort of differs to the astronomy that people are probably more used to is also that we have a very unique view of the skies here in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. It's different from the Northern Hemisphere. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One of the ones being that people might be familiar with the fact that, you know, as we orbit around the sun, our planet is actually on a tilt we're on a 23 degree tilt. We're not upright going around normally, but we're, you know, we're pointing sort of closer towards the sun in in our summer in the Southern Hemisphere. In the winter, we're pointing further away, like we're in the opposite direction. And so our solar system has a tilt relative to our galaxy. So it's like we have a tilt relative to our sun and then our sun has a tilt relative to the Milky Way. And so what this leads to is that the Northern Hemisphere is pointing out into like the rest of space, mm. but here in the Southern Hemisphere, not just on this continent, but many other Southern Hemisphere and, uh, cultures, we're pointing back to our own Milky Way. And so we get this beautiful, beautiful big view of it in our skies and the Milky Way contains so many trillions of stars, but also gas and dust, which create dark regions Wow. And so Southern Hemisphere and cultures also have dark sky constellations. We see the beauty in those dark spaces. So there's differences to the way we store information and how we transmit it. And there's also differences in the way that we recognise the skies and the features that we see within it. I feel like I've got eight different
1: follow-up questions <laughs> just from that, but I might let the audience ingest that. 0439757555. We've got Georgia in Wollongong here. Georgia, you wanted to follow up on something Corey said.
3: Yeah. So, Dr. Corey, you mentioned that... Orcas have been working with people now. In the Orca Uprising, I'm hoping to join Team Orca. So, can you tell us a bit more about how how we can um, yeah work with orcas?
0: Well, um, so we had to go back in the DeLorean and a lot of you are too young for that joke, but you get it anyway. Um, and we had to go back to Ewan Country and Ewan Country is a very special place, especially to me because I was born on Ewan Country. Even on Gamilaroi, I was born on Ewan Country. And there's a particular story from the 19th century, which goes back um, thousands of years. And um, it's the relationship between the Orcas and the Indigenous people down there, the Ewan people. And what it was, was... The um, Aboriginal people down there, the traditional custodians of that nation, they used to work hand-in-hand hand with the orcas, and the orcas used to bring in the fish. Um, and the relationship was that they, the Aboriginal people got the fish, and then they they actually fed the orcas the bits of the fish that they like, like the liver, the organs. Um, and what happened was, was in the 19th century, uh, there was a guy, and the story is called Old Tom and the Whales of Eden. Mm. And um, there was a non-Indigenous fella who... Um, accidentally or he did accidentally or deliberately killed the male orca and the orcas of Eden have never forgotten this so even as Aboriginal people we pass down stories and stories and stories actually orcas do as well um, so this relationship actually ceased to exist um, and now what you're seeing in Europe um, which a lot of you may be familiar with that um, the orcas are actually tipping boats in a act of revenge um, because you know humans have interacted with them a little bit
2: too much and um, orcas Never forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and on that concept of uh, the legends, it used to be wrongly thought that the longest period of time that you could have a legend transmitted by word of mouth accurately was only a few hundred years. But we now have very clear proof with regard to the rising of the waters after the last ice age, of Indigenous stories being accurately transmitted for thousands and tens of thousands of years with regard to the rising uh, waters on Melville Island, off Darwin, and Rottnest Island, off Western Australia, and the Gulf of Spencer, and Bay of Melbourne, and even Botany Bay before it was a bay, and also all up and down the uh, Great Barrier Reef of the waters rising, and we have... Taken these legends and translated them to landmarks which are now underwater and blow me down. The legends are correct. And then, um, Dr. Crystal, you were mentioning that part of astronomy is that the indigenous legends look at something going back that runs on a twenty-four thousand-year cycle, the precession, which is that the Earth that is on a twenty-three-degree tilt. Hmm slowly sweeps out a circle over 20 something thousand years
3: yeah so uh it's pretty crazy so the earth is, it has this beautiful tilt and it behaves much in the way that a spinning top does so if anyone's familiar with those toys I know once again this might show my age but you know it's something that's sort of like this sort of like conical pointed uh sort of triangular end you know but still nice and curvy so you have a stick on top you spin it really quickly did a little click with my fingers just there and um it spins really fast and when it's spinning really fast it's upright and it's great as it starts to slow down, though, and you look at that little stick on top, it starts to slowly point in different directions. And our planet actually operates in the same way. So on this 26,000-year cycle, we have something called the precession cycle. So the point, you know, the, essentially if we're on the South, the south Pole, we're sitting directly there and we're looking overhead. That's going to be the spot above us where all the stars seem to be spinning in the sky. They're doing their little laps. If we were to take a a long exposure photo, we're going to be seeing these beautiful circles and everything going around this one spot in the sky. And essentially that spot changes on this cycle every 26,000 years, every 13,000 years, it's at a new extreme. And so what's really cool is there's traditions coming from um, the First Peoples of Tasmania, which actually describes this cycle because they have stories which describe a great Southern star. So this spot, that we recognize now as being very dark and quite boring in the Southern Hemisphere, as the Northern Hemisphere have the beautiful North Star Polaris on that spot, so it stays in place and it looks very cool. Ours is it's got nothing. But this tradition describes, hey, we had a great southern star, and also that Tasmania was connected to mainland Australia via ice mass. And so we can use these different geological and astrophysical descriptions to start to get a date range for how old these stories can be. Because we this is this isn't even scratching the surface of how old our stories are. Um, and so we capture the that uh, this story seems to be at- dated to fourteen thousand years of a description of where this, the procession cycle would have a beautiful great southern star, and also we could walk across
1: <laughs> from Tassie to mainland Australia. That's so. Crazy! We've got Jordan and Adelaide here now. Jordan, you got a question about fish? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm big into aquarium fish, and I keep both freshwater and saltwater. I'm just curious as to why some can tolerate salt and some can't, but then some can do both. At the same time.
1: So the difference between saltwater and freshwater fish, why some can alternate and why some can't alternate.
2: Well, the thing to do is to realise that their skin is kind of like blotting paper and water can go through it. And then here is how you remember it. S for salt, S for swallow. Mm. So a saltwater fish will swallow a huge amount of water and then we play opposite games, it'll swallow a huge amount of water but hardly urinate anything at all. And how, where does the water go? Out through its skin. And so then the freshwater fish is the other way around. They don't swallow much water. The water comes in through their skin and they generate a huge amount of urine. S for salt, S for swallow. S for salt, S for swallow. Do
1: you have anything to add, Corey?
0: I do. Um, so some species like the barramundi, which is um, famous, uh, can go from saltwater to freshwater. And how do they do this? Well, they actually, they um, produce this membrane over their um, scales and that prevents um, them from getting um, ingest, uh, ingesting all the salt and they actually turn into red-eye barramundi. So that their eye colour actually changes as well. And um, certain species like the bull shark, which is terrifying to anyone that swims in Sydney Harbour, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so bull sharks can actually live in freshwater as well. And often they go up creek streams to give birth to their young. Um, and the reasons for this is because for a young shark, everything wants to eat it. And if you're in a river system, that's mainly freshwater. You've got a lot of yummy food that you can eat, oh Gosh, okay. including people.
1: <laughs> Ooh, we've got Jordan in Adelaide. Thank you so much. Daniel right here from Gurumbat. Daniel, what's your question?
2: G'day, uh, doctors. I wanted to know whether... Um the, the red shift, which we um, have come to measure the distance between stars and, and our Earth, is, is there, um, it uses the Doppler effect, from what I understand. I'm wondering if there's another um, end of the scale, maybe the, the ultraviolet or the violet range, that you might see um, astral bodies getting closer to us.
3: Absolutely. Excellent question. So, uh, what you've, what you've mentioned here, the Doppler effect, it's something that really does go hand in hand with, we look to all these beautiful stars in the sky and we get sort of an understanding of what we would be expecting from the colors that they should be showing us. And so we do see many stars, which are, you know, often galaxies and stars red shifted because the universe is expanding, things are moving away. But what you're referring to is also blue shifting. So essentially what's happening is we have these light waves coming from these stars. And when a light wave is moving further away, it essentially gets sort of like elongated. It has further to go. It's very similar to how we hear those sounds of, you know, um, different emergency services, sirens sort of changing when it's approaching you versus when it moves away. When it's moving further away, we get this sort of elongation. We get longer waves and that makes it red shifted. Essentially those colors get sort of pushed more to a redder end of the spectrum to longer wavelengths. However, when objects are moving closer to us, it's like those those waves sort of bunch up a little bit and so their frequency is increasing, we're getting more of a blue colour and so they're shifting down that end of the spectrum. And so this is actually something that's very handy because we use it in different applications. One off the top of my head in which we can use it is actually to figure out if, um, if a star has a planet around it, particularly if it's a sizeable planet, something that's rather significant. Because if a star has a sizeable mass... For example, like, you know, every single planet going around our star, we all orbit around the sun. We're all small. We're pretty insignificant. However, Jupiter is the one body in our solar system that is big enough that when it actually orbits the sun, the sun is not orbiting the sun. Actually, the sun and Jupiter are orbiting a comma, common center of mass, which is just outside the sun's surface. And so when we have planets that are so much bigger than Jupiter and they're going around their star, they are having, I guess, like center of mass is further out from, the su- from that star. And essentially it's causing a wobbling effect because it's causing that star to actually sort of orbit a little bit of a point in space. And so when we see a star moving slightly away from us and then slightly closer and then slightly away and then slightly closer and we're seeing that red shift, blue shift, red shift, blue shift, we can actually infer that there is a planet there and also getting insight into how big that planet might be relative to its star. So, yeah, blue shifting is very important for us. Dr. Carl, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Not what she said.
1: <laughs> We got Josh here on Wiradjuri Country. Josh, what's your question?
2: G'day, doctors.
0: Uh, my my question is regarding First Nation traditional burning, back burning, and the effect that it has—the positive effect that it has on our climate. And with the bushfires that we had a couple of years ago, leading up to that there was drought, 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 and since the fires, it's been very wet since. And I'd like to know if the First Nations people had an a, a positive effect on the climate and if so should we continue to use traditional back burning I'll jump in I'll answer this um so part of the part of the problem is um, Josh is that you know, When Europeans came here and they stole this land and they brought over all these livestock. So they brought over sheep and the sheep um, in their nature, which is not their fault, they they kind of dig up the soil, right? And the way that the soil used to be before livestock came to this country was very soft underfoot and the water actually used to hold up in there. But as the... Um, sheep come and dig up the grasses and they dig up the land, it actually dries out more. So therefore, you get more droughts um, because of that, because the water used to hold underneath. And if you look at, like, New South Wales, for example, and Victoria, um, a lot of the Indigenous countries, especially inland, are basically river countries. So all this water kind of moves underground, which you've probably referred to it normally as bore water. Uh, in terms of the um, using um, Aboriginal land management practices to burn um, to burn off and stop um, these bushfires, it's really important because a lot of the um, traditional fire management practices, and you can learn about this in Fire Country by Uncle Victor Stefferson, who wrote this incredible book, a really good friend of mine. Um, yeah. You Actually, there's rules like you don't, you don't burn the treetop canopy, you use cool flame and you keep the country young. So um, this is all, and it kind of relates to Crystal as well. She can probably talk a bit more to this, to what's happening in the sky um, above. So the seasonal changes generally dictate when you would do... um, what we call as cool burning or Aboriginal land management practices, and it does actually reduce um, the fuel that fires have because the drier the um, vegetation, the quicker it burns the more fuel it has. Uh, but if you can keep it young, it doesn't have as much fuel, so it does actually have a positive impact.
1: Yeah, Crystal, did you want to add to that? Yeah, uh, I've
3: I so I have a little shout out. I guess I have a radio show on Triple R called Indigenuity, and so I'm very lucky to have spoken to wonderful knowledge holders like Victor Stephenson and Uncle Bruce Pascoe, um, uh, Michael Sean Fletcher, etc. About uh, cool burning, and I have. Learned as well that regardless of whether we're going through like a La Nina, El Nino, big wet flood, or you know dry sort of time, these cool but these cool burns that need to occur occur on like very interesting patterns. It's not say every year you just sort of burn off and it's all good, but usually there's sort of a pattern to which areas in a geometric sense every five years, every seven years, and so there's a lot of structure to it. And so there's something that needs to be ongoing, even when you probably think the risk is actually quite minor. So it is a very ongoing process.
2: And then on the tenth of May this year. There was a paper published in the journal Science Advances called A Multi-Year Tropical Pacific Cooling Response to Recent Australian Wildfires. And to put that into plain English, yes, the massive bushfires of 2019-2020 set off the three La Niñas in a row – Tens of thousands of people evacuated in each of the states of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, half a dozen dead in each, due to the bushfires, due to global warming. Clear as the nose on your face.
1: We've got Jamie here. Dr Jamie, what's your question?
2: Hi, doctors. My question is, how can you forget things and how can you remember things? Memory is not like a, a DVD, if you can remember what a DVD is. Where you have patterns burnt into the glass, but rather memory is like a memory stick, where you can refresh the memory each time you access the memory, you actually put it back and you ch- you can change it, and you can put a false memory into one quarter of people. And the experiment was done at Disneyland, where they got a whole bunch of students at a nearby university and said, "Hi, oh, you got any memories of you know? Uh, we're going to we're going to give you this test, but uh, it was supposedly they were lying to the students. They were oh, 'Oh, we're going.'" Going to test how your values change over a period of one year, but really, they were paying a hundred bucks each time for the, them to say, Do you remember Daffy Duck giving you a hug at Disneyland? That's all I wanted to do with the first test. And they said, Oh, no now you can go ahead and do this memory test, which is all just crap. And a year later, they called them back and they said, Oh, sorry, there's a bit of a delay. Oh, do you have any open ended question? Do you have any memories? of Disneyland, and one quarter said, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember Daffy Duck giving me a hug, which is impossible because the duck that belongs to Disney is Donald (gasps) Duck. Daffy belongs to Warner Brothers. So they had successfully implanted a false memory. In general, what happens in most of our societies around the world is that the kids have no memory before the age of six. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be nice to them, but in these so-called indigenous primitive societies where every time you get together is a talking about the past, the kids have memories back to when they were two years old. Uh, but write it down, Dr. Corey. I've got a
0: question. Is this
2: why polygraph
0: tests aren't?
2: accurate? Oh, polygraph tests are ridiculously easy to fake. What you do is you take a Valium, which then throws you off your normal thinking, and then you put a sharp stone in your shoe. And then each time they ask you something, you answer accurately maybe half the time. And half the time you answer accurately, is your name Carl? Yes. And then they say, is your surname Krushelnitsky? And at that stage, at the same time as you say, yes, you press on the sharp stone in your, in your shoe and it puts through a spike. Polygraphs are ridiculously easy to fake. Uh, their main use is to scare people who think that they're accurate mm-hmm. into telling the truth. They don't tell the truth.
1: We've got Boyd here now. Boyd, you are currently traveling down the South Coast. What's your question?
2: Hey, hi, doctors. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I've from the southwest of western australia where the noongar race associate the southern cross and the two pointer stars to the mythology of the seven sisters and and that and the story behind that i'm just wondering does the same myth apply to the east coast um first nations people or is it or is it a different is it a different story
3: Hey, Boyd. Thanks for your question. Um, So this is, uh, I guess, a good opportunity to show the diversity of astronomy for different communities. So uh, I wanted to start off by just saying that um, Aboriginal communities are not this one sort of like homogenous group, just to make people sort of more aware. Because I know we're quite used to using this word sort of Aboriginal Australia, but in actuality, we're not just one people and Aboriginal is also a colonial construct. We're actually made of 250 different countries with completely different languages, like not even dialects, completely separate languages. And So what comes through with our astronomy is that you have some similarities of interpretation, sometimes especially if you're geographically close to one another, but then we also have these beautiful sort of like two sides of a coin, sort of opposite interpretations. And I can really sort of hone in here on you mentioning sort of the Pleiades, the seven sisters, because this was something that I had the chance to dive really deeply into in a lot of my research, just as a sort of side thing, because I'm an astrophysics student, but everything I've explored in Aboriginal astronomy is just everything sort of outside of it. It's just a passion. And I saw that there, especially when it came to the Seven Sisters, there were quite a few similarities and interpretations right across cultures, which is fascinating to me and it's the same right across the world despite we're separated by oceans we have a very similar theme of these Pleiades being recognized as a group of young women a group of sisters particularly in that sort of number and so what I was looking into because there was differences sometimes some communities would recognize them as a group of birds and other interpretations but I was really fascinated by how frequently they were seen as a group of women and also how frequently all these different communities right across Australia in such different parts of our continent had this similar theme of the youngest platy, the smallest platy, the younger sister, having some sort of harmful event befalling her. And so I was investigating this because so many communities will talk about, you know, for our, our mob, Murray Murray, the platies being this group of ice beings having something where, you know, a great fire ancestor in the sky tries to warm one up and they sort of diminish them a little bit, this this younger pleiad and she goes sort of, dimmer and then she sort of you know hides behind her sisters and a lot of different communities have this this running theme of something happens to the smallest star and she's sort of forever changed in a way you know either dim or she dies and comes back or she's kidnapped and then returns and so uh, we were looking at the astrophysical implications of what that's describing because for us this would just be another of many examples of the description of something called a variable star and this is stars that change in their brightness over time and so for us we do actually know that those stars within the Pleiades are variable stars and that they would vary on a type of scale that we would be able to see with the naked eye and so yes there are a lot of differences but what blows my mind is that similarity right across the country.
2: And there's another part of this at the moment when you look at the seven sisters with the naked eye you see only six unless you've got really sharp eyesight and by the way the Australian Indigenous people in the northwestern desert, north, the, top of the corner have the sharpest eyesight of any human ever measured on the planet but due to poor medical care, are also the ones most likely to be blind when they die. So average is six on six, which you see at six metres, what the average person sees at six metres. I'm about one on six. I really need my glasses. Some of these people have been measured at six on one and a half. Wow. They can see things four times smaller, and I came across this when I saw uh, in Windjana Winter- National Park somebody was giving me a guided tour, saying, "Can you see that kangaroo?" And I couldn't, and they could see the baby underneath the kangaroo. The Seven Sisters, hundred thousand years ago, were actually visible as seven because they were further apart. One of them was further apart, so that's seven hundred thousand years ago. That story goes back.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, Boyd! Wow. Thank you so much for your question. Thank you. That wraps us up for this episode of Science. Corey Tut thank you so much for joining us. If people want to see or hear more of your stuff, what should we do?
0: Uh, follow me on Insta and Deadly Science and, um, yeah, go out and get a book and um, follow all these amazing Indigenous scientists. There's so many of us out there. I will mention a few today, but check them out because they're really deadly.
3: Crystal, same to you. Yeah, so I guess I'm trying to use Instagram more frequently, so find me at Crystal Napoli. Um, I, yeah, I'm... Uh, working on some books as well so I had a, a, a beautiful book that came out last year with other Gomorroy astronomer Carly Noon uh, and then a couple more to keep your eyes up for uh, over the next 12 months or
1: so okay and a radio show on 3RRR oh, as well yes catch
3: me every Sunday at 1pm 3 r 102.7 FM we have it saved as a podcast Indigenuity every week talking to different indigenous knowledge holders about their science about their area of expertise um, yeah come along we learn a lot of cool stuff
1: amazing Dr. Carl I'll catch you next week peachy keen very excited <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And thank you again to Corey Tart and Crystal DiNapoli for coming through. We've got a bunch of NADOC Week content, which you can check out at our Instagram or TikTok at Triple J. I'm Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Lou Hill, and we'll catch you next week.
0: Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.